have taken off their highs. I don't think it's the end of it because you've got to allow for the fact that there's still a lot of fiscal stimulus to feed through into the economy where the US is, uh, is going for a new package, Europe, etc. So I, I expect that um, this is a correction so far, not the end of the, the highs necessarily, um, but it's, uh, it's reasonable to expect that the market will sort of try to adjust itself um, from its frothy levels and try and wait and see what the next level of stimulus comes through. Clearly the Fed... Uh, in their in their meetings during the week were basically indicative that uh, the taps will remain open. So at some point, liquidity is going to be there. And once uh, these um, these sort of short-term, some volatile uh, elements come through, you can expect that people will still want to buy the, buy the markets. Toby, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the India CEO of Societe Generale. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Stocks slipping back a little bit now as uh, as Wall Street futures also come off. The ASX 200 in Australia up about 0.8%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is now flat. The Cosby in South Korea up a third of a percent. Uh, futures markets suggesting the Hang Seng is going to open up about half a percent in an hour's time. In the commodities markets, uh, gold is trading at $1,843 an ounce. Brent crude oil, $55.06 a barrel. Thank you very much for listening this week. Do have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. Stay tuned for Back Chat with Hugh Chiverton and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast, fine and dry, rather cool in the morning. Uh, maximum temperature is going to be around 18 degrees during the day, and then the outlook is for it to be mainly fine in the next few days. Still cool in the morning during the weekend, but the weather will be warm during the day early next week. 15 degrees right now, 58% relative humidity. Yellow fire danger warning in force here in Hong Kong. It's 8.32. Here's, Samantha, uh, here's uh, Susan Lavender with the half-hour news. Hong Kong's second ambush-style coronavirus lockdown has found no new infections among 475 people tested. The government closed down Dung Fat Building on Gumping Street in North Point at 7 o'clock last night, forcing residents to stay home and undergo mandatory screening. A government spokesman said the operation was expected to last 12 hours. Block C of the building was partially evacuated on Wednesday after 13 confirmed or preliminary positive cases were reported there. This man, who lives in Block B of the building, told RTHK he was shocked and puzzled when he tried to return to his flat last night. When I went to work, it was okay, normal. Nobody was there. So now I just come back now, I can see like this. Yeah. It's very scary. We heard it was from Block C. Our block was okay, no problem. I don't know what's uh, what happened in the daytime. I, I don't know. Just uh, waiting to go home, but I don't know whether they allow or not. District Councillor Li Yushun, who's been helping the residents of Dungfat Building, says the ambush-style lockdown has caused disturbance to the residents but achieved little. I would describe it as a failure yeah, because there's only 475 residents have been tested and no case were found after these lockdown measures. And actually for, for the estimation of population of these four buildings, there are 15 four on each building and there are eight flats on each floor. So there are around 120 flats on one building. And for four buildings, there are around 480 flats. In total, there's around 1,000 something residents there. So 475 is just below 50% and no case were found. I can't see any meaning and efficiency on these measures. 
The latest lockdown came as health officials urged the public to remain vigilant against COVID-19, despite a drop in new infections of about a third. Authorities reported 39 new COVID cases yesterday. All but one were locally acquired. 20 infections were untraceable. Dr Chuang Shuk Kwan from the Centre for Health Protection said it's too early to tell if the pandemic has been brought under control as the virus is still being detected right across Hong Kong. The cases are spread throughout the territory. They live in Lofu, Daigotjoy, Otogok, Yunlong, Daipo, North District, Taigusen, Central District, Samsoibo. So I think the cases quite widespread in the community, although they are sporadic cases here and there. So if any of them, they come into a situation where there may be super spreading events, that may cause another major outbreaks in the community. Dr. Chuang added that people living in Block 7 of Laguna City in Lam Tin will have to undergo mandatory testing after residents of two flats came down with the virus. The news from RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton. Your co-host today is Danny Gittings. Danny, good morning to you. Good morning. Today, patriots, elections and digital vouchers. Xi Jinping has told the chief executive Carrie Lam that, quote, Hong Kong's transition from chaos to stability has once again demonstrated that the principle of patriots governing Hong Kong must be always upheld to ensure the steady and sustained implementation of one country, two systems, unquote. What then are the implications of this formula? What will it mean, for example, for district councils and for future election arrangements? What about BNO? What about the CE Election Committee? And could the CE be chosen by consultation rather than election, as CY Lung has stated? What do you make of the Chief Executive's response that election is better? Later, we're going to be also discussing a proposal for a free $5,000 octopus card proposed by the uh, Liberal Party to boost our economy. We want to hear your thoughts. You can leave the message on our Facebook page, Backchat and RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or you can call us on 233 88266. 233 88266 uh, is the number. A uh, quick email from uh, Mary, uh, who says, Dear Backchat, perhaps it's time that co hosts be introduced at the beginning of Backchat programme. Not all listeners are familiar with their background and inherent bias that should be considered when evaluating their comments. Nixie Lamb, for example, can be labelled disgruntled, ousted district councillor and member of DAB party. Uh, read the discussion on the lockdown. She was clearly defending shortcomings on the part of the general organisation under the purview of the Secretary for Home Affairs, who just happens to be a DAB member. Disparaging remarks read yellow elements have crept in since she lost her seat. Perhaps she was all about mutual tolerance. Any views on national security legislation have to take into context the fact that members of her party cannot express any reservations, however legitimate, on its opaque implementation and scope uh, says uh, Mary uh, well uh, we Nixie Lamb is not speaking on behalf of the uh, DAB she's speaking as an individual as are all our, uh, our co-hosts um, I don't think do you call it an inherent bias I mean they have a particular take uh, and uh, there's no it's no secret that uh, Nixie for example is a member of the DAB party or, or that uh, uh, Danny is a, a, a legal academic but he's not speaking in, in that capacity yes and when there is a specific issue that we're specifically involved in we, we normally will mention 
that, won't we? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you you can take it for whatever you want, really, basically. Uh, um, uh, th- th- as I say, there's no secret about uh, a person's background, but we're not going to uh, labour the point um, because I don't think the background necessarily implies an inherent uh, bias. Uh, anyway, joining us for our discussion uh, about uh, elections and uh, patriots and uh, patriots governing Hong Kong, uh, we're joined now by John Burns, an honorary professor at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Emily Lau uh, will be joining us uh, later, and we have another academic after the news at nine. Once again, backchat at rthk.hk, our email address. Professor Burns, good morning. Welcome back to Backchat. Good morning. Um, now, uh, Xi Jinping said um, yesterday that, um, or he said this week, that uh, patriots uh, should rule Hong Kong. But there's nothing. He's just repeating what uh, Deng Xiaoping said back in the 1980s. Well, why, why should we be paying a particular attention to it this time? Well, I agree with you that it's uh, not new. And, but, you know, I think the devil is in the details. We don't really know what uh, being a patriot means precisely, and this opens the door for more Communist Party vetting, I would suppose, and is that a road that we want to go down? So, I mean, this this, uh, this idea about how patriots need to rule Hong Kong, it, it seems to come back almost as a roundabout. I mentioned uh, Deng Xiaoping in the 80s. There was a campaign about this about 10 years ago. And, and now it seems to come and go periodically, or this time maybe it's going to come and stay. Well, I guess it's uh, the central government expressing some dissatisfaction with the way the uh, electoral arrangements in Hong Kong have worked. Um, for example, the election of the district councillors, uh, you know, in which the pandemic swept the uh, swept all of the, virtually all of the seats. And, and let's be uh, let me be completely transparent. I'm a middle of the road pandemic. Okay, thank you for your uh, dis- disclaimer there. So uh, now, of course, we're seeing a lot of reports suggesting that election systems are going to change going forward, and that uh, perhaps at the National People's Congress that uh, we'll see changes to the basic law, both in um, relation to elections to legislative council, but particularly the uh, election system for the chief executive. And of course, the former chief executive, Siwai Lung, even suggesting there's no need for the chief executive to be elected at all. What, what do you make of all of this? Okay, so I think the critical thing here is we have to remember that there are various views of what is democracy. On the one hand, some people say, and the Marxists typically say, that democracy means rule in the interests of the people. So a benevolent dictator could be exercising that rule, whereas the process people articulated by Carrie Lam in this dispute and Bernard Chan and Zhang Xing are saying, well, no, no, it's ruled by the people. And so processes like elections are actually important. And, you know, this entire thing came up, I guess, when C.Y. Long articulated the view that, well, the actual situation in Hong Kong is not very favorable currently for... Um, a patriotic CE to actually win an election committee race. And he was looking at, especially at the professional associations who he they have 300 votes. 
who he said, you know, are packed with opposition people. He was looking at the votes from the district councilors and all this kind of thing. And there is some worry, I guess, on the part of the Communist Party. Let's remember, the Communist Party fundamentally distrusts the Hong Kong government, the Hong Kong civil service, who would be disqualifying candidates, and the people of Hong Kong. So this is why I believe they are articulating uh, this kind of a view. But my own view is that the election committee is already and stacked in favor of the establishment. And, that, you know, I mean, the basic law, let's face it, we've been told repeatedly is a living document, and it means whatever the Communist Party says it means. So they can change these arrangements in a heartbeat. They can say, okay, you district councilors, no, 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 you're not going to be involved in this. Professional associations like law, accounting, and Education, uh, no, 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 you're too democratic. You won't elect uh, patriots. Uh, we'll kick you out, too. This raises questions about legitimacy, and see why Lung has also talked about this. You know, I mean, which is more legitimate? He does have a point that if the election committee produced uh, an American stooge, as he put it, then... And then the Communist Party said, nope, we're not going to take this, this person. Uh, we're going to appoint somebody else. This would have an impact on legitimacy. Actually, the entire process is only very modestly legitimate. Let's face it, the emperor has no clothes. Well, well yeah, I think, I think a lot of people, you know, would see this argument between C. Y. Lang and Carrie Lam and laugh hollowly perhaps uh, because it doesn't really doesn't make any difference whether you you, uh, you call this an election um, it amounts to a selection it amounts a ba it's uh, it's widely understood that Beijing will choose um, who's going to be the chief executive or, or, or are they wrong I mean are, you know no, is no, there no, real competition? No, no. they're not wrong but one process makes um, the outcome makes it more difficult for the Communist Party. That is to say, less convenient for the Communist Party. You know, so um, and so this is about this is about convenience for the Communist Party in ensuring the right outcome. Because you know, the party does not election like elections with so-called surprise results, and it repeatedly tells us that the elections on the mainland almost never produce surprise results. So, but C.Y. Lung said, well, we could have rules for consultation. But my God, consultation in Hong Kong has a very bad reputation. It doesn't matter what the rules are. I mean, we could have very elaborate rules. As we know, uh, the history of consultation in Hong Kong is basically, you know, the government listens to what we have to say and then does exactly as it pleases. I mean, and of course the point is that other people will also say that uh, why is Beijing so worried? It controls so much at every stage. Now with the selection of candidates, uh, who can who can stand? 
Uh, we're talking about bringing in, you know, extending the vote, the franchise to Hong Kongers living in, in the mainland uh, and so on. Uh, if we change the rules for the election committee and so on, you already have in legislative council, you have the split voting and you have the functional constituencies. And that, yeah, then you have the ultimate sanction of, of Beijing can decide not to appoint a, uh, uh, any particular chief executive. It seems to be in control at every single stage, and yet they're still worried. What's, why is that? Uh, I agree with you. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, this is my view. They have many, many tools to um, ensure the right outcome. And I think they want, you know, do they want to disqualify all the district councillors? And uh, they could do that. And the administrative officers in the Hong Kong government are charged with this. And But they don't trust the civil service. So this is, you know, to do the right thing. So... So I think there, and with CY Lung, say, wow, all these professional associations, you know, they don't always elect the right people. And so um, I think they're, they are worried about this, and they're wo- worried about the optics of this. And this is about, you know, the hearts and minds of the people of Hong Kong. Would the people of Hong Kong perceive it as legitimate? It is, or modestly legitimate, it is. You know, it doesn't matter what the part, whether the party feels it's legitimate. It's about whether we in Hong Kong perceive it so. Let me just pick you up, pick, pick you up on something you said uh, earlier. You said that the Communist Party doesn't trust the Hong Kong civil service. The Hong Kong government. Yes. Um, in, yes. Yeah, we hear the, <clears throat> these loud protestations of support for the chief executive. And uh, are you including the police in that? The, the, the Communist Party doesn't trust the police in Hong Kong. Um. Okay, so uh, that is... Uh, Your stop for, for gives you probably, pause for thought. Yes, yes, yes. No, that's probably less true. Uh, I'm especially talking about the AO. You know, Carrie Lam is an AO. And so the, the Communist Party now has direct control over the Hong Kong police. So it's, this is not part of that equation. They are civil servants, as you pointed out. So... Probably it has more trust. You know, trust is a, a scale, right, of more or less. And probably it has more of that. Do the people of Hong Kong trust the police? This is, uh, we've seen all kinds of uh, data that indicates the trust of the police. And the Hong Kong government has gone right down the tubes, you know, since uh, 2019. So, um it's a very complex mix. But, I, you know, you make a valid point. Right. Also joining us is uh, Emily Lau, former Democratic Party uh, lawmaker and head of the Democratic Party. Ms Lau, good morning to you. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. It's Patriots Governing uh, Hong Kong. Uh, as we mentioned, this has been uh, around since uh, Deng Xiaoping. Why is it being underlined uh, now, do you think? And, for example, there was a story in Xinhua where this was, this was the headline, this was the point that was picked out from what, uh, what, the, uh, what Xi Jinping had to say to the chief executive. Why now? Well, for a start, they have departed from what Deng Xiaoping said many years ago and, and, and that's, that's the Communist Party. <laughs> they do whatever they like, and they still call it uh, following Deng Xiaoping. But uh, I think they are preparing the way to annihilate all opposition voices 
as you have reported many times on the station and elsewhere, uh, they are going to change the election laws, they're going to disqualify uh, district council members, they're going to take away their powers. So uh, at the end of that exercise, if they manage to do it in time, there will be electrical election, uh, but everything will be under control. And the same with the chief executive election next year. So it is really very, very horrific uh, that they are so... Uh, but of course, it shouldn't have come as any surprise. Uh, but they are so intolerant. Uh, so uh, they, they just want to, uh, you know, get rid of all these noises, all the opposition. What do you make of this extraordinary spat between uh, C.Y. Lung and Kerry Lam that, um, uh, where, that uh, he ends up criticising her that uh, uh, he wants, uh, says consultation will be sufficient and she says no, there actually should be an election of some sort for the chief executive? Well, I, I think the two, of course, uh, do not get on and that's no secret. And C.Y. Lung wants the job back. And uh, he's, I guess he's feeling quite lonely because uh, he hasn't got much uh, media attention. So he has to uh, make some noise. Uh, but whether it's by consultation or whether it's by a small circle election of 1,200 people, at the end of the day, it's one person, one vote. It's Xi Jinping's vote. <laughs> so does it really matter whether you dress it up as an election committee choice or co a result of consultation? Actually, it is not much different. So why the big argument over this between a chief executive and a former chief executive? Is it just about personalities then? Personality and also CY. Of course, there may be some people in Beijing who support CY's views. But I think CY is feeling very lonely. You should invite him to come on to your show. Maybe you've done so already. We did, actually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he we... wants attention. And, uh, and, uh, and there are people, as you discussed earlier, that who, who feel that even this 1,200-member uh, committee is not safe. So we have to uh, reduce it to just consultation. So, um, I mean, but at the end of the day, is the Communist Party, is Xi Jinping's choice, Whoever doesn't get that blessing will not get the job. Uh, is CY a patriot, as understood by, say, Xi Jinping and Carrie Lam uh, isn't? I don't know. I don't know who's a patriot. I, I think I would like to tell you I am a patriot. <laughs> so when but uh, but according, to, according to Xi Jinping's understanding, according to the understanding of the party, what, what uh, does that mean? CY is a, is a loyal, is loyal, and Carrie Lam... Uh, perhaps would be seen uh, as British somebody train, who's a British trained. British trained. She's an administrator. She will do whatever she's told. But her heart isn't quite. Well, if that's a, a patriot implies line. something more than just um, uh, doing a job, doesn't it? Yes, it, it is terrible. Someone, you know. So if you is it? Why is that terrible? From, Why is that terrible? Where you came from will disqualify you already. If you are British trained. If you are an AO brought up by the colonial government, then uh, you are a suspect. I mean, that is crazy. I thought it's people who support one country, two system, but still uh, we can have the room to develop Hong Kong. That should also be regarded as patriot. But if they keep narrowing down the definition, excluding more and more people, then it is terrible. And that's why, you know, on Sunday, the British are going to allow people who with BNO passports to apply for visa. 
more and more will flee because they say this is not the Hong Kong they're used to. Uh, this is a different Hong Kong. Maybe this is mainland China. Yeah, you you raised the BNO scheme, and I expect we're going to hear a lot of publicity about that over the weekend as applications open, and we'll have to see whether uh, the, the website crashes. Um, China's been threatening all kinds of um, retaliation against the BNO scheme. The BNO scheme's now um, only 48 hours away from starting, and we still haven't seen any sign of um, what form that retaliation um, is going to is going to take. Do you think they may have backed down, or they're saving the saving it for after the scheme is in effect? I think it's very stupid to second-guess them, <laughs> because they can do anything. But if they are still thinking, considering, well, I think that's a good sign. And I'm sure not just people like myself and others, but people from their camp who are telling them, hey, cool it. Many people who are BNOs, uh, they are the backbone of Hong Kong's economy. And if you do something to affect them, you will undermine Hong Kong very severely, unless you don't mind, unless you want Hong Kong to, to collapse instantly. Otherwise, be careful. Uh, or, or there are you know, hundreds of thousands of civil servants who are BNOs. So I hope they will just calm down and just let it be. And anyway, this is just a path to citizenship, as the British government has said. They are not saying to the BNO, oh, you become British citizen tomorrow. No. They say you go and stay five plus one year. Then you apply. So that's six years down the road. So come on. let the... But what I'm saying is, if they do all these things, if they try to obliterate the opposition and uh, to point out certain civil servants are their enemies, professionals, university academics, they are going to have this reign of white terror. And people who may not want to apply for the BNO visa, they will have to. And I just read in the news that they have to go down to the office, the BNO or the office, to, to have their finger printed. So I don't know how long that queue is going to be. You remember when they started issuing the BNO before 97? The queue was so long, so, so long. It was so embarrassing. John Burns, thoughts on the on the on the BNO? I know you're going at nine o'clock. Well, I, I also need to tell you, I'm a Chinese citizen and I am a patriot. So you're a Chinese citizen, not, John I, Burns. I am. I'm not entitled to a BNO, um, but uh, but so you don't hold a Chinese passport, do you? I hold a Hong Kong SAR passport. Okay. And look, look what it says. Yes, and then you are a Chinese citizen. Chinese. Yes. I am a, I have a three-star ID card and all that. So the point is, I'm a patriot too. But I agree with Emily that you know what a what who is patriotic and uh, how this would be implemented is unknown. And the party can basically say whomever they wish is a patriot. I, I know you can you can you, you can argue about that, but. You know, from Beijing's point of view, and and perhaps from others' point of view, there is a pervading kind of distrust of China 
and a and a positive uh, image, a positive uh, reckoning towards 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 the West, which is pretty pervasive uh, in Hong Kong, and you find this in many ways, and and, and AOs with you know and their family connections uh, and so on, and the elite in Hong Kong, and the way that's tied to the UK and to Canada and Australia is just is just one symptom of that. So they're not entirely wrong, and I don't think you can say they're entirely paran- paranoid when they say that um, that that. You know there isn't. Uh, there are people in in uh, in Hong Kong who are not patriotic, in the way that people perhaps are, are patriotic uh, in the mainland, and that, that's what they understand. So, you can say, yeah, there are. Uh, Hong Kong doesn't have a sense of national identity and so on and sympathy and and feel that patriotism in the same way that a lot of people in the mainland do. I completely agree with you. I mean, remember. We, in 1997, we transitioned without changing anything. We transitioned with our colonial economy, dominated by tycoons and monopoly, with our colonial education system, of which I'm a part, our colonial civil service, and our colonial political institutions. And legal system. None of this has been reformed. So, yeah, so, you know, they're not paranoid. They have a point. They have a point. Of course, I agree. Uh, of course, I agree with that. But then the question is: to what extent? And, and look at the mess. That, look at the mess that the administration have arguably made. Some people will say, "Look at the fate of the chief executives and so on, and the public disquiet and so on." Uh, that's because um, uh, you know the wrong people have been running Hong Kong. They haven't embraced the one country properly. They chose the wrong people. You know. From 1997 yeah. till now. Maybe they did. So, Maybe Lao Tzu Kai so, would say they did. They, oh, this is why the liaison office is being reinforced, uh, reformed, why the all the institutions of the party are being reformed. All of this is being done because, if the truth be told, the Communist Party has screwed up big time in Hong Kong. Okay, well, okay, that's an interesting theme to follow up on <laughs> the news. <laughs> for, the mo- for, the, for the moment, John Burns, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Honorary Professor, Department oh, of Politics welcome. and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Emily Lau will uh, stay with us and uh, will be joined also by uh, uh, Brian Wong uh, uh, after the news. And we're also going to be talking about this suggestion of a f- uh, $5,000 on your octopus card, $500 a week proposed by the Liberal Party to boost the economy. Uh, the weather before the news now at 9 o'clock. It's going to be fine and dry, rather uh, cool in the morning. Maximum temperature today about 18 degrees. Still cool in the morning during the weekend. 16 degrees now. Relative humidity is at 54%. So we're also going to be uh, thinking about a proposal from a legislator from the Liberal Party uh, to uh, put uh, $5,000 on everybody's octopus card and distribute them around Hong Kong as a way to uh, boost the economy. $500 a week uh, is the suggestion. Uh, what do you make of that? Uh, the point being that uh, instead of people saving it, people would, would actually spend it and would spend it uh, locally. Uh, backchat at rthk.hk is our email address. Uh, drop us a line. We'll do our best to read it 
out, or you can call us directly on 233-88266, or you can comment on our Facebook page. That's Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. We want to hear from you. That's the whole point of the programme. Uh, we're joined now by uh, Emily Lau, former Democratic Party lawmaker, and Brian Wong, founding editor-in-chief at uh, Oxford Political Review and also a columnist with Time um, magazine. Also John Burns, the uh, former, uh, now honorary professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong, was joining us in the first part of the programme. And uh, we've had a comment from uh, Matthew, who says, Is Professor Burns serious in his assertion that we don't really know what it means to be a patriot in Xi Jinping's definition? That is disappointing and sounds quite absurd and not too credible coming from a China scholar. Surely it means unwavering loyalty to the party and Xi himself. As a self-described middle-of-the-road Democrat, does he think he would qualify for participating and ruling Hong Kong in the future, provided he met the other requirements under the basic law? I hope Professor Burns can have a more robust go at defining what the CCP and she, she mean by patriotism as this is critical to a clear understanding of the situation and often used by the CCP to muddy the waters and confuse those who don't pay proper attention. That comes uh, from Matthew. Well, Professor Burns is gone, but Emily Lau is still here. Emily Lau, just before the news, uh, Professor Burns was referring to how China had chosen the wrong people in Hong Kong and to these reports of a uh, purge in the liaison office. Of course, reports uh, yesterday saying that um, half the staff in the liaison office had been replaced by the new director who came in last year and uh, he He's brought it deliberately brought in people who have no previous connection with Hong Kong affairs. Um, what, what's your comment on this? Well, I just think that the scene is set uh, for more uh, persecution, as I said, annihilation of opposition voices. So I think many people are bracing themselves for a very difficult and harsh times ahead. But I think many people uh, still, you know, they are determined. Uh, to carry on the struggle in a peaceful and non-violent way, to defend our free lifestyle, uh, to defend, uh, you know, what was supposed to be promised under one country, two systems. But I think the, the outlook is, is very bleak indeed. You're sounding a lot more pessimistic that we had you on the show a couple of weeks ago when you were saying uh, people will fight on and you sounded much more upbeat, upbeat, but now you sound rather downbeat. People will fight on, but I'm also realistic to see that uh, the, uh, uh, the leadership in Beijing is hell-bent on cracking down, and then the people here who are supporting the uh, Carrie Lam administration, and they are also saying, hey, go ahead, go ahead, purge them, get rid of them. So it's very difficult. So I'm, I will not lie, but of course I'm not going anywhere, and uh, I'm sitting here doing what I, including talking to you and others, and if they want to arrest us, well, that's too bad. But, but it is very difficult, and the people that I've spoken to, either those who are ready to queue up for the BNO visa, and others who will stay, some will say nothing, others will stay and continue with the struggle. You, you haven't given any consideration to reclaiming your British passport? You, you could get no, it back, no, couldn't no. you? No, no, no. I mean, it is you know, I have been fighting this struggle for many decades. I'm not going to give up. And as, as I've told many people, I will use my liberty. I will sacrifice my liberty to challenge them. Okay, come and arrest me and arrest others who will not flee. Yes, and like they've arrested so many in mainland China. 
But for those who are frightened, who want to go, I fought so hard for them to have this road to the UK and also for other countries if they will have a more lenient policy. So let them have a choice. But for those who either have no choice or don't want to go, we will carry on and see how many more prisons they have to build in Hong Kong to lock us all up. Just a sidebar, but um, Ms Lau, you were talking about uh, looking at the queues of people uh, at the British consulate. Uh, I noticed that uh, the uh, consulate have uh, just said that uh, people who have a biometric BNO passport will be able to apply from home uh, using a <laughs> smartphone app to scan their passports rather than having to visit a visa application uh, centre so they can complete their applications from home. So they won't be queuing up. So that's, I'm not sure they're thinking of that. Just, just finally, I mean, I mean, just the point I was making to to uh, John Burns before the news at uh, nine o'clock. You know, we may not know exactly what what patriotism is, but there is still a, a, a large kind of colonial hangover in Hong Kong. He was John Burns was listing all the institutions which haven't really changed. Uh, in, in Hong Kong, and you can see, and even the chief executive has spoken of a, of a, you know, a lot of uh, distrust by Hong Kong people towards towards the mainland. So. You know, as I said, they're not. Maybe it's not just a question of paranoia. They have a point. There is, there is still a conflict. There is still uh, some jarring element in the relationship between uh, Hong Kong and the mainland, and uh, the mainland wants to smooth that out. Well, of course there is this problem, but we ask ourselves why. If you look back not too many years ago, when uh, there was the Olympics held in the mainland. Hong Kong people were very patriotic. Well, okay, well, never mind why, never mind why. I mean, let's, let's, <laughs> if you wanted to sort it out, if you wanted to, to uh, end that, um, that mistrust, you want, I mean, what, I don't know what amounts in perhaps some way to a colonial cringe, um, how are you going to do it? Well, I don't know why you say never mind why. If we don't know the reason, my friend, how are we going to solve the problem? I know you are trying to add like, as a devil's advocate, maybe because they don't want to come onto your program, but we have to talk about why. We say, ah, because of this, that's why they behave like that. So if we can solve the problem, and you say, never mind, just be patriotic. How can you do that? Hong Kong people are very rational, by and large. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, that's Emily Lau, former Democratic uh, Party lawmaker. Um, also joining us uh, in the second half of the show is uh, Brian Wong, uh, founding editor-in-chief at uh, Oxford Political Review and uh, Time columnist. Uh, good morning, Mr. Wong. Welcome to Back Chat. Morning, 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 Pete. Hello. Uh, now, you, you heard Emily Lau saying that things are going to be very tough and that we should expect more, um, we, we should expect more measures from Beijing. Uh, what, what's your prognosis of the path ahead? Well, I think we need to divide up the question into sort of several parts, really. You've got the political, and then you've got the social, economic, and finally, there's the perceptual and the optical. Uh, on the political front, I don't think liberalisation and democratisation is likely within the short to medium term. And this is for a multiplicity of reasons. Firstly, um, there's a heightened sense of paranoia and a lot of of resentment coming from the mainland side of things towards Hong Kong in light of the aftermath of the 2019. And secondly, hardliners seem to be vindicated when you look at the points of Hong Kong as allegedly a so-called hotbed for, for insurgency and that that is a problem that it must deal with. And as such, we've seen clearly a moratorium, to say the least, on, 
on political liberalization and also democratization in accordance with Article 45. There's even talk recently of replacing um, well, the election system of the chief executive with a, with a consultative system. So I don't think that there's going to be much change on the political front. Um, socioeconomically, though, I'm optimistic that there's ultimately and fundamentally a convergence um, between and an alignment between both the mainland Chinese and also the Hong Kongers or the masses in Hong Kong. And that is towards a more egalitarian and redistributive Hong Kong, where not that is indeed something that's aligned with Hong Kong's core values, of course remains up for question and depends on whom you ask and whom you are really as an individual in Hong Kong. But overall, uh, in the short to medium term, pessimistic as for changes in attitudes and reception towards the government. If we want to talk about fixing and restoring public faith and confidence, that's going to be a project that would take one or at least several years, really, in order for this to get kick-started properly. So that's my take on the situation. In terms of fixing uh, confidence in the, in, the, in, the, in the government, is that even possible? I mean, very, very difficult. It's a, it's, it's a Herculean task, right? But the first and most important hurdle is the government must be seen to be responding to the people. And quite clearly, from the most sort of fundamental thing, the, the fact that, you know, the, the, the approach towards COVID-19, the anti-pandemic response to that, to the more bureaucratic, bureaucratic and a technocratic side of things, to the more fundamental questions of both do we think about and see our officials as publicly responsive to the needs and, and pleased of the people and as able to handle the scepticism, concerns and queries of the people? It's not clear that's how uh, current government administration is capable of doing that. And that's a worry because fundamentally there's so much going on in Hong Kong that can be disentangled from the politics, that can be you know, stripped away from or, or just fundamentally detached from all of these sensitive constitutional legal questions, and yet what we see today is quite simply you know, unresponsive governance that's not necessarily you know, credible, but let alone you know, persuasive and, and mobilizing towards the people. And that means that when it comes to pushing forward you know, supposedly non-controversial, supposedly non-political issues, there's a lot of good grounds for scepticism and also opposition from even the more apathetic of individuals who otherwise would not oppose government policies just because it's the government. But we see that as, as a phenomenon right now. And when the trust is so low and when it's so fundamentally, I guess, uh, you could say regressive even in terms of government public relations, it's hard to see how we could rebuild the city uh, given how fractured everything is, really. John, John Burns was saying in the first part of the programme that uh, he thinks Beijing doesn't trust the civil service uh, in Hong Kong. Do you agree? Do you see it like that? Well, I suppose it, it really depends on what trust means. If it's to, to denote the sense of sort of patriotism and nationalistic loyalty, I don't think Beijing trusts the civil service. But does Beijing trust the civil service to to run the show and to govern and to, to aid with, you know, policymaking in Hong Kong, I, I guess it's a more mixed bag there, right? Because on one hand, obviously, these are the folks with a know-how and a lot of experience, both institutionalised and also personal experience and understanding of policy matters in Hong Kong. And I think, I dare say, our civil service has unrivaled knowledge of policies and also, uh, to, to some extent, really, uh, governing effectively in accordance with a set of protocols or KPIs. You know, on the other hand, 
the civil service to, to lead, to, to create policies, to innovate. Uh, I'm, I have reservations on that front, simply because I think from Beijing's point of view, uh, a lot of the issues in Hong Kong can be attributed to the civil service. And I'm not saying that this is necessarily, you know, very voracious or, or the, the entirety of the truth out there. I certainly think, you know, there are many other factors at work here, but from Beijing's angle, I suspect the civil service is indeed amongst the core problems that it's seeking to tackle on that front. Now, a lot of people are leaving Hong Kong. A BNO um, a visa scheme is going to open at the weekend. How about you? Would you consider leaving? Well, I'll be staying in Hong Kong uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, it's, it's a part Sorry, of we... my advocacy and work. Sorry, we, we've lost you. You, you were saying you were, going to, you were going to stay in Hong Kong for the foreseeable... I'll certainly stay for the foreseeable future, uh, given that this is... Well, I fundamentally view Hong Kong as, as my home, and it's a, it's a home to which I... I endeavour to contribute, but more importantly, I believe this is where my advocacy, um, by being here... Oh, I think we've lost him. Sorry, you said you were staying in, in, in Hong Kong. Okay, a quick email. This is from Johnny, who says, Emily Lau suggests there's going to be an exodus of Hong Kong residents to the UK under the BNO scheme. I disagree. While a large number of eligible people may apply for a BNO passport, I have serious doubts about how many of them will ultimately pack up and leave Hong Kong for an incompetently governed country, one whose economy is likely to be in interminable decline following its brainless decision to leave the EU, and two, where racism is deep-rooted. That comes uh, from John and Johnny. Do you agree with Johnny? Uh, I, I agree with Johnny to a certain extent. Uh, can you hear me now? Am yes, I can. yes we can hear you. Yeah, lovely. I mean, I agree with Johnny to a certain extent that Britain, post-Brexit, in all honesty, and given the COVID situation right now, is in a bit of a dire spot. So I, I'm unsure of the prospects of those who choose to move. But with that said, ultimately, where folks and where individuals choose to live is a matter of values as opposed to just a matter of sort of hard and cold facts. And if individuals do feel that uh, Britain is more compatible with their own values and dispositions and choose to move there, I believe that's a choice that each and every individual should have the right to make. And there is a possibility that, I suppose, uh, individuals move to Britain and then new folks come in. So people come and people go. But on my end, I'll definitely say uh, in Hong Kong. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, let's uh, bring in an email from uh, Bowen. Uh, Bowen says, uh, Hugh couldn't have been more wrong to say before the break that the problems Hong Kong face are due to the wrong people having been chosen to run Hong Kong, as they have failed to govern in accordance with one country, two systems, the meaning of which has changed since the handover and can continue to change. Even if the so-called right people have been chosen, there's no guarantee they could have run the city in accordance with that. The critical word in that quote in, in, in your introduction is governing. The thrust behind the statement is to have patriots, as defined by the authorities, do the governing of Hong Kong. In the past, that word has not been defined widely enough. So that's why we had so many pandems elected to LegCo and lately the district councillors. These ranks can be purged now that the definition is likely to be widened to cover them. A little bit later, those in charge of hosting Backchat could be defined as sharing and governing our city. And then those who make phone calls and write messages to the show and so on. Thank you very much, Bowen. And thank you very much indeed to uh, Brian Wong, who's uh, founding editor-in-chief at Oxford Political Review and also a columnist for uh, Time magazine. Thank you very much indeed. A couple more comments uh, on, on this subject, finally. Uh, Alan says, uh, Patriots must run Hong Kong is a formula to let Beijing exclude anyone they don't like without even pretending there is any legal 
process or oversight. It's pure authoritarianism. They distrust all Hong Kong people. Since they already choose the CE, this must mean they want the CCP to choose all levels of government and, for that matter, have a veto of corporate officers. They've forced the ouster of bankers, media people they approve of. That's uh, from uh, Alan. Thank you very much indeed for that. Oh, one more. Mushroom says many of those holding a BNO passport cannot qualify to league in England anyway because they will not be able to fit the criteria after seven years. Many also don't want to leave their families in Hong Kong when they just have the passport so they can travel for holidays and visit family. Again, media hype. Uh, that is uh, from Mushroom. Thank you very much indeed. Finally today, we wanted to uh, turn to this uh, pr interesting uh, proposal uh, made by a uh, Liberal Party legislator giving out stored value octopus cards and topping them up with uh, $500 uh, every week to uh, encourage consumer spending and boost the local uh, economy. For a comment, we're joined uh, on the line now by uh, Vera Yoon, who's the lecturer in the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Hong Kong. Ms. Yoon, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for, for, for joining us. Uh, what do you think of this idea? Well, this is not a very good idea oh. <laughs> um, as compared to distributing cash. Um, because digital vouchers are not as potent as cash, um, you can use cash anytime, but vouchers may have deadlines before which you must use the vouchers. I think this is because they want to stimulate consumption in the economy by doing so. But um, there are a few problems with using voucher. First, you need to make sure every shop accepts the voucher. But the problem is um, cash, fiat money, is stipulated by law as you know legal. So shops have to accept them. But vouchers, there might be that sort of issue. Some shops may not accept vouchers. And also because is the proposal is in the form of October's credit, which means um, many shops, especially small businesses, they do not have that octopus machine installed. Um, and some business may not have business registration. For example, if I you know, make some handcraft and sell it online, I'm not a registered business owner. I, I would doubt whether I can actually redeem sole vouchers. Do I need a business registration? And if you use octopus, which means um, the octopus company charges me, so... It's likely to channel the streams of consumption to large chain stores, which already have, you know, used the October service. But for small independent shops, they may not, you know, benefit from this. And and also, it um, reduces welfare because this is not as useful as cash. And of course, there might be people who do not have October cards, although it may be a very small number of them. So distributing money actually has more benefit than um, distributing vouchers because it's simpler, it's faster, it involves less administrative costs. Some shops may need to you know, redeem voucher to the government and government pay back to the shops and all this involves um, administration costs. But cash doesn't have this problem. And does it help stimulate consumption? Uh, for most of the household, they don't because for hand-to-mouth households, they would spend all the money anyway because they... They don't have enough savings. So it does not really change their consumption pattern. And for unconstrained households, um, well, it does not alter their consumption plans too because they would have used the vouchers first before they use their own cash. But, I mean, as a whole, they do not spend more because they um, have more savings. So it does not really help stimulate, you know, consumption a lot. So what would you do? 
if you, I mean, you say that uh, this is not not a good way of say, of setting about it. Um, if we were going to, um, there were going to be some kind of handout. Uh, would you just put the money in everyone's bank again, bank accounts again, like the government did uh, last yes, year? Where cash, cash is much better because I mean they want to use it as a voucher. Maybe um, the first um, reason is that you want to know, you know, how much people have spent, and you want to make them spend like every week for a certain amount. Uh, the problem is, well, there are many ways to alter that consumption plan. So only if I actually spend less than the amount each week that I would um, actually spend more because of the voucher. If not, I would just, you know, you know, spend a voucher first and then I use my own cash. Um, so it does not have that effect of, you know, stimulating. And also, if you use it in the octopus, I'm not sure because for more adults, we do not have a personalized um, octopus card, which means we can resell it in the market. Well, that the secondary market doing this, I, I give you my, my credit. And the other way is I can buy more um, long-lasting products, um, like, you know, instant noodles, things that can be kept for a longer time, and then I use them later. Um, and then so it reduces um, my consumption next stage. So I, I'm not sure about... Um, um, and the thinking would be that you would you'd be encouraged to spend it because it would be there... On your octopus card, useless except for except to be used in a, in in within Hong Kong, uh, and you know ready ready to go. Uh, whereas if you give out cash, people will be tempted to save it to set it aside, and then it won't have any stimulus effect on the economy. Well, I just make the point that um, for hand to mouth households, if you give them cash versus giving them vouchers, they would spend it anyway because they cannot save anything. It's like for food on the table. And for households which are not constrained, like in the middle class, we would have spent a voucher first and then our own cash. So with, if you give me cash, I would still spend the same amount of money that I have. So oh, it, it does not have any effect compared to cash to stimulate consumption. But it that, just restricts um, how you can spend your money. But then again, if you just put cash into people's bank accounts, it, it may just stay there. So this, this, what you're really saying is there's no perfect no, option. But the problem is, um, I can still save um, my salary. I would just use your voucher and save more of my salary. Then it doesn't really help, right? Okay. And can the government afford this kind of measure in any case? Our, our financial reserves have sunk so much over the past year. Um, the government admittedly has spent a lot this fiscal year um, on stimulus and crisis relief. Um, the deficit is likely to be as high as uh, 300 billion Hong Kong dollars. Um, but when you compare with um, other governments, um, Hong Kong still has ample fiscal reserve um, at about 800 billion, and it has no debt. Compared with most developed countries, they have 80 to 100 percent GDP government debt, and they still have um, generous stimulus programs. So I don't think um, that's a problem um, for the government to um, give out more stimulus or help to the needy, especially. Um, the problem is the shots are shared and evenly. So some people are hit very hard, but for some, they are not affected. We can see, you know, fine dining restaurants, they are like pool booking, and people are still buying luxury products. But at the other end, um, the people who can't um, have enough um, for spending each month, and they have to move to subdivided units and in very bad conditions. So the wealth safe in good times should be spent in bad times because it just gives better effect um, as compared to if you spend those reserves at good times. So I think the government should spend those money. 
And equally, is a non-means-tested handout like this, is that the most appropriate use of funds? I mean, we look at um, businesses that have been now shut down since December, sort of gyms and um, uh, beauty parlours and so on, and uh, government has been very restrictive in terms of uh, the money it's given to people who've been so badly affected by, uh, particularly affected by the pandemic. Um, uh, when they have these cl- quarantine closures, there's no compensation for the residents in, affected by them. Wouldn't a targeted approach be more effective than a than a five thousand dollar handout to everyone? Um, a targeted approach would help um, needy more because there are people who don't um, need those five thousand a lot. Um, and but then I think all the scheme it, it tries to do um, looks like it's biased towards uh, the big business, um, whether it is about. Um, paying for some of the salary to secure employment in, um, during the last two uh, cycles of um, government help. And also on this, if you use Octopus Card, it's really like, you know, channeling money from small business to the big lodging stores. Because small business, they may not be, um, they may not have this Octopus machine. Um, so the government has to think about um, when people are being unevenly affected by the shocks, whether it should be more targeted, especially it always say that you know it is, uh, we don't have enough money for um, a very long time, so we need to spend more carefully. And on that spot, why the government um, would like to give out universal cash? I think I think the good thing is because um, everyone is affected. It's hard to see like which uh, it, it's hard to distinguish which sectors to help more. You know, there are people who are unhappy about not being helped by the government, so giving out cash. Um, from time to time would make everybody happy and think that they are being covered by the government. So I think there are arguments from both sides whether we should do targeting or um, universal um, cash giving out. Okay, uh, a couple of uh, emails. Uh, one from uh, Dan. Uh, hello, Dan, uh, who says, uh, Dear Bank Chat, uh, a bad idea to give us $5,000 on our octopus cards. Uh, Dan says, I'm moving house and I lost my wallet in the process. Uh, for about four hours, which got me thinking about all things I might have to replace, including my octopus, with about $600 on it. Imagine the field day thieves will have with millions of people carrying a value-heavy octopus card. Uh, Just send the money to my bank account again, please, uh, and accept my thanks. That's a take from... uh, Dan in uh, in Taipo. One more comment uh, from Gloria just on our earlier discussion on, on the BNOs. Uh, Gloria says, uh, it's easier said than done. Uh, people say they want to go, but how many will really leave Hong Kong? Uh, I doubt unless they have enough money to spend for the first few years. That's from uh, Gloria. Well, thank you very much indeed um, for those comments and thank you very much indeed to uh, Vera Yun, lecturer in the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Hong Kong. And uh, Danny, many thanks to you. Uh, here's the weather forecast before we go. It's going to be fine and dry today. Rather cool this morning with a maximum temperature of about 18 degrees. The outlook mainly fine in the next few days. Still cool in the morning during the weekend and the weather will be warm during the day early next week. There's a yellow fire danger warning at 16 Celsius. Relative humidity 53%. Cleaning outward facing windows can be dangerous. Don't extend your body out of the window or lean against the window grill. Keep window grills locked and only stretch your arms out of windows when cleaning. Standing above floor to clean windows without grills is also risky. You should stand on the floor and use tools with a long handle. 
For greater safety, always install window grills if practicable. Remember, put safety first when cleaning windows. 9.31, the news now with Susan Lavender. Hong Kong's second ambush-style coronavirus lockdown has found no new infections among 475 people tested. The government sealed off the Dongfat building on Gumping Street in North Point last night, forcing residents to stay home until they had tested negative for COVID-19. Residents are now being allowed to leave the area after showing proof of their negative test. Authorities say they couldn't get in touch with 190 households when knocking on their doors and will follow up with them. Reaction to the lockdown from residents was mixed, but the district councillor for the area described the whole operation as a failure. And Hong Kong residents with British national overseas status will, from Sunday, be able to apply to live and work in the UK under a special visa. The UK says it was acting in response to the sweeping national security law imposed on the SAR last year. The news from RTHK. Welcome to a brand new morning, and now the back chat's through. Hold tight to the side of your seat, it's the morning brew. It's Phil Whelan and he's dealing an interview or two. Live now on Radio 3, it's the morning brew. He'll entertain you lots, well fingers crossed, until his voice is shot. A dedicated individual Sit back, enjoy the chat Plus a tune or two Hold tight to the side of your seats It's the morning brew Good morning Yeah, Friday Good to be back with you On today's morning brew Friday is a fun day Going to catch up with Chef Neil Tomes at 10.10 for some great stolen recipes. And, of course, some chat. He's going to be live from one of the many kitchens in his smoking empire. We'll be on Facebook Live, so if you want to ask any of our guests questions, get them in. They'll answer straight away. Danny Hicks after 11 with this week's sports and all. Mostly football today, so you might want to chip in there. After 12, it's Marshy Movie Time. Join our critic James Marsh for more clicks to the cinema and hopefully some more of your viewing suggestions. That's the long and short of it. It's the morning brew. It's Reef to get us going this morning and place your hands on Radio 3. Oh, bless!